So if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to turn with me to the book of Mark. We get to finally jump back into my favorite thing to do and walk through books of the Bible. And so we're going back to Mark. It's been a couple months now almost. Uh, and so we're, we've been walking through, and this is the steady diet of Redeemer, is to go through books of the Bible. And so we're going to be in Mark chapter 8 this morning. Picking back up, you might not remember, or maybe you have some notes there that kind of, oh yeah, that's right, we did look at this. And so I want to jog maybe some of your memory if you haven't been with us or if it's been a while to just remind ourselves of what's uh, been going on. It's also just good to be back uh, with you all this morning. Uh, Man and I had a great time away. Uh, it was, I will say, to be honest, it was a little difficult coming back. You know, you're like, man, can we stay just a little longer? Um, it was just the two of us. We had not, I mean, we adopted five, over five years ago now, and we had only been gone like a little bit of time uh, from Grace and our daughter and stuff. And so thankful to Kay and watching them for like eight days there almost. Uh, or I guess she's like, no, it was exactly eight days. I don't know. But, um, but anyways, it's so good to be back and to, to jump into God's Word. This is what I love to do. Uh, is to look at God's Word and help us to see what Christ has for us this morning. So again, have a Bible, Mark chapter 8. We're really at the halfway point, the actual actual halfway point as well as we finish out chapter 8. We're going to cover a lot this morning, so I hope you have, I already talk fast, so I'm sorry about that, but I hope you can follow along. We're going to cover a big chunk of Scripture, but as I studied it, the first time I read this, I was, a, I, to be honest, I was a little confused. I'm reading it and I'm going like, all right, I hear the stories, but like, what's really going on here? And the more I read it, the more I studied it, the more I looked into it as I prayed over it and read it and kept reading it and kept reading it, you started to see the cohesiveness of this whole chapter. Uh, I had ended with the feeding of the 4,000 uh, about two months ago almost, uh, but really even that in itself is still somewhat, so much connected to the stories, but it's several stories, and if you look at them from face value, sometimes you might just miss the connectedness of it. And this morning, I want to help us to see that this morning, and I believe that's exactly what Mark is trying to accomplish as we look at this great, great passage of Scripture. So what we've been seeing so far, to catch you up really, really fast in Mark, is Mark is moving quickly. One of his favorite words that we see if you read the book of Mark is he uses this word, immediately. He says a story, he tells it as quick as possible, and he says, immediately Jesus did this. Immediately the disciples went here. He is moving as quick as possible. It's the shortest gospel of the four, uh, which again, the gospels are the telling, the stories of Jesus' life. Uh, the ministry, his, mostly it's, it's focused on his public ministry. Uh, the last three, four years of his life, that's really all we get to see. A little bit here and there, but mostly it's just that. But Mark's gospel was most likely, most considered it to be the oldest. It was the first written. Uh, many say it was from Peter's perspective. Not written by Peter, written by Mark. Uh, but it was kind of Peter's eyewitness account, Peter's telling of these stories to Mark. And these are oftentimes, you'll notice even in our story this morning, uh, how Matthew is going is to really kind of uplift Peter. In this story, Peter's kind of brought down, and I think that's his humility um, post the resurrection and really seeing what's going on and his, his wanting to put all of the focus on Christ and not on himself. And so this is what Mark has written. Mark has written from that perspective and really the first eight chapters, even up to our pivotal point in verse 27 that we're going to look at in just a second, is really all culminating to this moment is who is Jesus? This is the big question of this whole book. It's like, who is Jesus? In the first eight chapters, what we've gotten so far is a lot about his power. Who is he? He's this one who can, 
as we were just singing about, who can raise the dead? Who invites us to call him Father, only a holy God? And so we see this picture in this gospel of, of Mark trying to say, here's who Jesus is, but what we're seeing is his character in these first eight chapters. Who is he? He's compassionate. He looks on the crowds and he sees his heart is melting after the crowds. And what does he do? He does what we just looked at a few months ago, but in this passage that we're, that we're following from is he feeds 4,000 people. He sees the brokenness. He looks on them and he sees them at the feeding of the 5,000, the one that preceded that one. He looks in the crowd and he's, and he's feeling compassion. You remember what he says? He says they look like a, they're like um, sheep without a shepherd. He looked on them and he's seeing that they're wandering around, they're lost, and they need someone to guide them, and his heart is after those people. And when, he, when people are brought to him who are sick, what does he do? He, he looks on that with such heartfelt emotion. His, his heart is saddened. He looks at the brokenness of this world, and what does he do? He heals. He loves these people, and he longs to see them. And what we're seeing, though, is, okay, well, that's great. I love people, too, but I can't heal people. I'm not even a doctor. I can't even try to give you, like, 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 I don't even know if you want me to be the one who gives you medicine, right? I might mess that up somehow. The point is, he's healing people. Not only that, we've seen him raise the dead. He raises a daughter who had been, who had died, and he does this, and he does it in all these unique ways. He does it with his voice. He does it from a distance. He does it in unique ways, as we saw in chapter 7, where he takes spit and he touches the man's tongue and he touches his eyes and he brings eyesight to this man and he brings a voice to his mouth, makes his tongue untied is the picture and he now can speak again. He does it with a touch. He does it with a voice. He does it in unique and various ways. But what we're seeing is his power. What else have we seen? We've seen him We've seen him calm a storm. Who has the power to calm a storm? Who can say stop lightning, stop waves, stop wind? Jesus does. And so the question has been, who is this? And we've been seeing this power and authority. But what we're going to see this morning is not only does he have this great power, he's the promised Messiah. He's the promised, he is the one that the Old Testament was talking about. The one that Austin read, and Austin chose that verse on his own. I didn't give him any direction, but we're going to see this even in our passage this morning. The Son of Man, that phrase that Daniel uses, Jesus, that was his most common phrase to use about, among him, about himself, was the Son of Man. And what we're going to see about this Son of Man is he's this Messiah, and they think he's going to come and he's going to rule and reign. Messiahs don't die. Messiah, we, we, like, saviors are going to come and they're going to rescue, not die. But what we're going to see is a big shift in the book of Mark. Everything's going to point to a cross. From here on out, it's headed to the cross. And Mark is trying to get us there as quickly as possible because he knows it's the most important part of this story. And so I want to invite you this morning, what we want to see this morning is see clearly. And that's what we see in this passage is this really, what we're going to see from this collection of different stories, and we're going to try to go through it as quickly as possible, but hopefully enough that we really grasp it this morning. Because we want to have eyes to see and ears to hear, and we want to have feet that move and go and live on mission, as I believe Rob was talking about even last week. But this morning, what I want us to do is look at this passage. We have really, I have two main points. It's pretty simple. We're going to look at the diagnosis. Like, we want to see clearly what's the diagnosis, what's the problem, what's the problem, and then what's the path to that solution? What's the remedy? What do we need to do? 
What's the path for that? And that's all we're really going to do this morning is look at those two things, but we're going to do a lot in between. So ready? Here we go. Get your seatbelts on and turn with me to Mark chapter 8, verse 11. First, let's look at the diagnosis. Here the Pharisees came and began to argue. This is following again the feeding of the 4,000, which is in Gentile territory, by the way. God's heart for the nations. It's in Gentile territory. Compassion, he feeds the thousands. Verse 11. The Pharisees, again, that's the re- religious rulers. Uh, these are Jewish men um, who are very high at keeping the law, but what we find is their hearts are actually far from God. And what we see here is exactly that. The Pharisees came and began to argue with Jesus, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. I mean, very brief conversation here. Again, Mark giving us a little bit of details and moving on. But what we, what we find really quickly is the Pharisees already are, again, like we've seen with Herod earlier, and we're going to see that again mentioned to the disciples in a second. Herod and the Pharisees and others, and even to an extent the disciples, don't grasp still who Jesus is. And here, they're like, we need a sign. Like, give us a sign and then we'll believe. Give us something. Give us something. And you're like, if you're like me, when you've read this, this, this first eight chapters together, as we've looked at it together, you're going like, how many signs do you need? Let me point to about 20 of them. We've already looked at 20 of them, maybe, maybe 40 of them. I don't know. We have so many signs. He's pointing us. He has power over nature. He heals people. This is exactly prophecy of, of what this, this Messiah would do. He's giving them sign after sign after sign. And here they're wanting a miracle. Show us something. You're like, well, I just fed 4,000 people. What else do you need? I've said these things about me, and they don't need a sign, but why? Because Jesus is actually in front of them. Like, there's no need for a sign. There's no sign pointing to me. I'm here. You don't need a sign to tell you that. I'm in front of you. And they want a sign, but really what they're doing is they want to test him some more. In verse 14, it tells us, it says, now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And I want to, actually, I want to stop before we, we, we move f- further, because I want to focus on that a little bit, because that is what, have you ever found yourself doing that? You're like, God, if you would just show me, if you would just give me this sign, if you would just put it out in front of me, tell me exactly what I'm to do, then I will do it. Have you ever done that before? I mean, you can be honest. It's, it's, it's cool to be honest in church usually, you know. It makes sense to do that, <laughs> right? Like, I don't know if you've ever done that. I find myself sometimes wanting to do that. God, like, all right, I want to do what you want for me, or I want to do this, but I'm still a little hesitant. I'm still a little unsure. Will you just, like, make it really clear? Like, it'd be great if you just put some clouds in the sky and it said, like, go here, do this, sign up for that, don't do this, you know, like X, Y, Z. We want signs, but I think it's fascinating, fascinating. And if you have a Bible, look at Luke chapter 16. I want to just take it. I got a lot to cover, so I'm going to just kind of quickly go here. But in Luke 16, there's this story that Jesus tells about a rich man and Lazarus. This rich man uh, was really like a miser. It's like the Ebenezer Scrooge. I mean, like he was mistreating this poor, poor man, and this poor man was just wanting food, and this man would mistreat him, and he, was, he, was, uh, he would ignore him and all these things. And this poor man died, and was, it tells us in verse 22, this poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. 
and in Hades being in torment. He lifted up his eyes and saw Abram far off and Lazarus at his side. I want you to just notice what happens. He has this conversation. Like, again, this is a story. Uh, but picture this. This man here is, is in everlasting torment. He hates it. He's despised. And he knows it. But he's starting to have thoughts about family and friends and people and his loved ones. Because what he's going to find out is, like, you're stuck here. You're not ever getting out. There's, the gap is too great for me to come and bring you out anymore. And he, and he tells him, Abraham says, hey, in your lifetime, you received good things. And Lazarus got the poor things, the bad things. But from eternity, Lazarus, it flips. Lazarus gets the good things. And this rich man gets eternal punishment. And it tells us that as they're having this conversation, it's a unique conversation. And so eventually the conversation shifts and because he's like, I have five brothers who need to know and be warned about them. Will you send someone, will you send someone to them to tell them and warn them about this place? They will never want to come here. Listen, warn them. And he's like, he said, no. And he's like, listen, they have the prophets. They have the Old Testament. They have the Word of God to warn them. Will you just do this? And so well, listen to what he says. He says, and he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes, this is verse 30. He says, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Like you send a resurrected person to them, they're going to hear the message and they're going to get it. All of a sudden, the sign is there. They may, it connects and it makes sense. But what does he say? He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. You see, people want a sign. It's not a sign and a miracle problem. Like, if you give me a miracle, then I'll believe. No, it's a heart problem. It's a belief problem. And this is exactly what we see now in verse 14. Now they had forgotten to bring bread and they had only one loaf. You're like, bro, did you not see how many were left over? You should have brought a few extras. Put them in your satchel or something, right? Like, he just fed 4,000 people, and they're, like, arguing, and they're like, we don't even have, and it tells us, it's interesting, and I want you to see this, to point it out, because it looks like a contradiction. It says, now they had forgotten to bring bread, so it says they'd forgotten to bring bread, meaning they don't have any bread, but then it says, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. So there's a couple ways of looking at either they're just saying like, generally, we basically don't have any bread. We only have one loaf. Or as a lot of commentators actually agree on, they think this is Mark's unique and kind of like interesting way of saying like, they're forgetting that the loaf that Jesus was saying he's the bread of life, that the loaf is in the boat with them and they forgot about it. I thought that was interesting that so many commentators kind of agreed on that. But one way or the other, they don't have enough, and they're arguing. And look what it says in verse 15. And he cautioned them, saying, watch out. He's warning them. He says, watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Now, that might make no sense to any of you or some of you. It may make a little bit of sense, but the picture of leaven was that it would spread. And in the Old Testament, it was a big use of corruption of evil, and it spread, and how just a little bit of that leaven in your, um, I don't know all the stuff about bread making, I, I hear there's some people that do in our church, and so uh, they could probably explain this a lot better than I ever I could try, but this, all of a sudden it's spreading, and, this, and, and, it, and all of a sudden now a little bit of this leaven's in this one, but quickly it can easily be in another and another, and it'll spread so easily. And the picture was of being careful of that. Don't let just a little bit of sin into uh, into your life because what will happen is that sin will spread to more sin and more sin. Have you ever found yourself doing that? 
Maybe it started with just a, a really poor choice, and what did it lead to? It led to maybe a lie, maybe an innocent, small little, what you would think is innocent, it's not innocent, but maybe an innocent little lie. It turned into a bigger lie and a bigger lie, and it turned into some other things, or maybe just one dabble in something. It seemed so innocent and just affected only you, but then what happens? A little bit of leaven, as he's saying here, leavens the whole bunch, and, and quickly it can infect not just an individual, but all the people around and he's warning and he's saying, beware of the leaven. And what does he say in that leaven? Specifically, the leaven here is the unbelief. It's the unbelief of Herod. It's the unbelief of the Pharisees. They don't believe in Jesus. And he's saying, warn you of that. Be careful. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And then it quickly goes, they began to discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. They're back to it again. <laughs> and Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not perceive or understand? He's like, do you not yet understand? Do you still not get it? That's what he's saying. Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? Like, have you already so soon quickly forgotten? When I broke the five loaves uh, um, for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? Can you imagine that question being asked to you after you're arguing over this? Like, oh, you're grumbling. And Jesus is like, having, like do you not remember how And then the question's asked, how many baskets? And they're like, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Seven. It's like, they, I remember. Like, they're like, it's kind of like they're being called out. And the seven for the 4,000. Again, this seven basketfuls left over. And he said to them, do you not, notice this word right before understand. Do you not yet understand? Do you still not get it? They're worried about all, they're worried about the trivial again. They're worried about bread. And they're like, the bread of life is in the boat with you. You don't need to worry about bread. You're focused on the trivial. You're focused on the small. You're missing it all, and you're missing who I am. And actually, if you go back and look at the feeding of the 5,000 and the 4,000 in the various accounts, what you'll see is you really don't see them marveling over this. It's a kind of a surprising thing. You're like, they've marveled over different things, but the feeding of the thousands, you would think they would be like, oh my, how is, like, this is incredible. Like, I'm passing out bread, and it just keeps coming out. Like, they would not just be like, man, this is really cool. Be like, how did he do it? Like, are they whispering to each other going like, how did he do this? I mean, like, it's one thing to heal someone. You're like, all right, you know, maybe, maybe something, something happened behind the scenes. I don't know, all these things. But like, bread, and they're like, there was no bread. There was a little bit of bread, and then there was a lot of bread. And then we fed everyone, and they were like, hey, I'm stuffed. I don't need any more bread. And they look, and there's 12 baskets full. There's seven baskets full. Like, again, question, who is this that can do this? And yet, here he's saying, do you yet not understand? I think this is important to see. And that yet word, I think, is also important. Because what's going to help us is with this next story. This next story, what we're going to begin to see is this progressive aspect of it. So first, we're seeing the diagnosis is that we're all spiritually blind. Like, we are all spiritually blind, every person, Herod, Pharisees, and disciples. 
are spiritually blind. They don't get it. They don't understand who Jesus is fully. They sort of do. The disciples are getting it. The Pharisees are like, absolutely not. Herod was like, absolutely not. And others, many others have been as well. The disciples are like, yeah, sort of. I get it, but I don't get it. And then we get this healing story, which is fascinating. Look at verse 22. We're going to begin to see not only our diagnosis, and we'll continue to see a little bit of the diagnosis, but we're going to see also the treatment plan here in our next section. He says, and they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. Let me just side note from the sermon almost, but I read that a few times and just kind of brushed over it, but I want us to make sure that we don't brush over that statement. They came to Bethsaida, and notice what it says, and some people brought to him a blind man. Now, it wasn't like, hey, man, this poor guy, I feel bad for him. No, it tells us that, they, that these friends or these people, they must have been friends. Why do you know we think they're friends? Is because they begged. Like, friends begging Jesus for their friend to be healed of his blindness. Think of this, like here, this is one aspect of the church and our, and our, and our lives together. We, talked, we did a long series on community and the importance of that. And here we see the community saying, we love this person so much, we want to take him to Jesus, and we're going to beg Jesus on behalf of that person. I want to ask you, who are you begging for? Who are you asking God to heal of the blindness who are you just crying out to the Lord? Is it, are you crying? Are you begging? Are you pleading with God and say, God, will you open their eyes to see you for your beauty and your glory? See him the way I see him. Are you, are you advocating for them? Are you going to the Lord consistently? Because what we're seeing is there is a spiritual blindness, and what we're going to find is the blindness cannot be cured in and of yourself. You can't get better. You don't personally choose to get better. You don't fix yourself. You don't be like, all right, I've got a little crusties in my eye. Let me clear them out. Oh, now I can see. No, no. This is blindness. The picture of that literally was Paul. Paul, he's blinded by the light of Christ. He can't see, literally, like physically couldn't see when Jesus was beginning the process of opening his eyes. He was opposed to Christ. He's a murderer of Christians. He's trying to put every one of them out. He's trying to squelch this movement of Christianity. And Jesus meets him, has this miracle on the road. His eyes, instead of, like, it's a picture of his eyes are being opened, but at the same time, they're closed. But what happens is, as he's hearing the gospel and believing in Christ, the picture is like his eyes were like scales coming off of his eyes, and all of a sudden, he could see again. But he was completely blind. See, this is a picture of our spiritual condition, of our blinded eyes. And we don't believe. We have this unbelief. And here what we're seeing, though, is this man is being brought to Jesus saying, like, we're begging you, Jesus, will you heal our friend? Will you give him sight again? And he may not deserve it, but we love him and we want you to see that. And I get we don't deserve anything from you, but will you please? In verse 23, he says he took him the blind man, by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes, and I know that might sound weird again, but if you're like, you're the savior of the world, you can spit wherever you want to on me. He says, and when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? <laughs> can you imagine you're asked that question? You've been blind and you're asked, do you see anything? And you're like, okay, I can see. But notice what he says. This is a really interesting story. 
And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Like, I see, but I don't see. <laughs> like, like, it's like, it didn't fully work. Like, you, you, you spit on and you, and you touched my eyes, and I've heard stories of your healings, and now you're opening my eyes, but I'm like, I can, who is, is that a tree walking? <laughs> is that a tree walking or a human? I mean, he can't see. And you're like, well, Jesus, did, did, your, did your power not fully work? Was it a little out of tune? Was it, did you mess up? What, what is this? Why is this, why didn't it fully work? Well, it's very simple once you understand, again, this context of these stories. He's talking about spiritual blindness. But also we're seeing the progressive nature of that spiritual blindness. That you need maybe, you're going to need multiple touches of Jesus. What we're seeing is the disciples kind of get it. We're going to actually see Peter gets it really, really well. But not fully. He's going to need some progressive touches along the way the way. Because look what happens. It says, then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Can you imagine? He's looking. He can't, he can't see it all. His friends have begged Jesus to heal him. Jesus heals him, and he's like, but I, I mean, I sort of can see. I now have light coming into my eyes, but I can't, I can't determine what's what. It's like me when I wake up before I put my contacts in. I'm like, I cannot see a thing. And so I put my contacts in, it's like, ah, I can see again. Here's this picture of this man. So again, why is Jesus telling this? Because this is also, this is a healing, but it's also a story. It's also a way of teaching. He is teaching his disciples through this story something. And he's teaching them, because he's just responded to them. In verse 18, having eyes do you not see, having ears do you not hear, you're not fully getting it, I am with you, you have listened to me teach, you've watched me heal, you've seen, the, I mean, you've seen me calm storms, you're getting the picture, but it's still fuzzy. How many of you can relate to that? You're like, I, I, I want to believe, I sort of believe, but I just can't quite get fully there, or I'm like, I'm almost, or it's been, it's been a process of like really trusting Jesus, and it's taken me some time. I believe, but I don't fully believe. I think this is a great story for us, because here's this process, and this healing story is showing these disciples that like, yes, you're seeing, but you're not quite fully seeing. And so, in verse 27, it says this, And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? Like, what are the crowds saying? What are the people saying about me? Who do they think that I am? And they said, and they told him, John the Baptist. They think you're like John the Baptist, like this great prophet. And others say, Elijah, like you're like, like, Come back like Elijah from the Old Testament and like you're this great miracle worker. You can heal people. You can prophesy. You can make amazing statements and talk about the things of God. You're wonderful. And this is what the crowds are saying about you. And then in verse 29, he directs them. And this is the pivotal moment in the book of Mark. And he asks them, but who do you? And I want you to hear this. The you there is like, you know, Southern slang, y'all. It's plural. So it's like, who do you guys, who's you guys, <laughs> what do you guys, what do y'all say about me? What do you guys think, the disciples? And Peter answered, you're the Christ, 
Now that word is the anointed one. It's the Messiah. Matthew gives us much more detail. Again, Mark, quick. And then even from Peter's perspective, kind of doesn't say all the extra stuff that you might have heard before about Peter. And upon this rock, I will build my church. The gates of Hades will not prevail against it. All that's left out here. Again, Peter being humble and saying, listen, yes, I did make that statement for the crowd and for the, I mean, for, for the group. And being that spokesman for the group said, you're the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And you're going like, still, why does he keep saying that? Again, he knows what happens as, as the word gets more and more out that as it's like hey, the time isn't quite yet. There's still some things I need to do. There's things that need to happen before I die. And the more I heal, it's almost like this. I think I heard it this way from one of the pastors that I was listening to. He said it this way. He said, it's like as if every time Jesus healed someone, every time he showed his power, it was like he was putting another nail in his own coffin or nail in his hands. Every time he does that, because it's like he is a divider, it's like, yeah, okay, well, yeah, you're, you're, saying, you, you're saying you have the authority of God? Wait, you can, you're saying you have the authority to, to forgive sins? When he said, man, your sins are forgiven when the man was lowered down in the roof? Every time he spoke, every time he healed, it was like he was putting his nails in his own hands. And, that, and so when he keeps saying these things, it's, it's not like, oh, I don't want to die. It's not time yet. There's still more that I need to do. There's still more people that I need to teach. My disciples aren't ready yet. I need to teach them more. And so these are some of the reasons why he says not to say these things and do these things. But here's the shift. The shift starts in verse 31, and we're going to see it through the rest of this book. It's the first time, actually, that we get this. Jesus is going to start to talk about the cross. He's going to talk about what he has come for. Look at verse 31. This is all a part of our treatment plan. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. There's that phrase, Son of Man, that Austin read from Daniel 7. This picture that Jesus used of himself, the Son of Man must suffer. But the Son of Man, as, as Austin read earlier, is like this one who's going to rule and reign. And we were singing about this, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Like we think, his, you will reign forever. And that's the disciples are thinking. When they hear Son of Man, they're probably thinking about Daniel. They're probably thinking about like the Messiah. He's going to come and he's going to overthrow Rome. And he's going to lead us to victory. He's going to lead us and we're going to get to be under his rulership and his reign. And this Messiah, and Jesus begins to say, no, 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 that's not how it's going to be. This Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected. This is the song we sang a couple weeks ago, Man of Sorrows. He's going to be a suffering servant from Isaiah 53. He's going to suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. He is predicting his death. He's telling them exactly what's going to happen. And after three days, rise again. Now, I want you to remember that and maybe even circle that and highlight it because you're like, he has said to them, and what we see, he does this plainly. He is explaining these things very plainly, but now you're going to remember, they're going to forget. Even after Jesus did rise from the dead, what are they doing? They're going like, now really? Can we really believe this? He said, I will on the third day rise from the dead. Rise again. And he said this plainly in verse 32. And Peter, 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 who just said, you're the Christ. And Peter took him aside. Notice this. Can you imagine 
You know, you're a disciple, and all of a sudden, what is the disciple doing here? The disciple's becoming the teacher. <laughs> Disciples like, no, 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 Jesus, no, let me tell you what you're supposed to do. <laughs> like Peter. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. And why would he say such a strong statement? Do you remember the temptation? Remember the temptation that Jesus faced right after his baptism? He was taken to the wilderness, led to the wilderness. He's in the wilderness, and Satan comes to him, and he tempts him with several different things, three specific things. And one of those was the shortcut. Hey, if you'll just bow down to me, we can, sh- we can avoid the cross. We can avoid the suffering. We don't have to go down that road. You can just do that, and then you can rule and reign. You can have it all. It's a shortcut. Jesus is seeing this in the same vein, that Peter, that Satan is using Peter in this moment to try to get him to take the shortcut. Just avoid the suffering. Avoid the, the cross. Avoid what, the, what is ahead in front of you. And, and Satan knows it's coming, and Jesus knows it is coming. And yet here, even Peter is like, wait, wait, let me tell you, Jesus. No, no, no. You're not going to suffer because why? Messiahs aren't supposed to die. Messiahs are supposed to reign. They're to rule. They're to bring, they're restore. How are you going to restore if you're dead? How are you going to lead us if you're dead? Like, this, this isn't going to work. We've given up everything, Jesus, to follow you. What, you're going to die? No, Peter's like, no, 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 no. Let me tell you how this should go. This is how it should go. You live, you rule, you reign. Romans are gone. Let's go. And Jesus says, no, no, Peter. This is not how it's going to go. And so he turns and sees the disciples and he rebukes Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. You think this is how this is supposed to go. Have you ever felt that before? This is how my life was supposed to go. This is what I, was sh- I should be doing. This is what I think I should be doing. What we do is we become the teacher and we try to tell Jesus what we think he should do. It's, it's so tempting. I, I get it. I, I feel like I do it sometimes too. It's like, God, will you just do this? No, no, you shouldn't have done that. You should have done this. God, you shouldn't have, you shouldn't have let this person experience that. You should have let that person who deserves every bit of it. Not this person. They didn't do anything wrong. We question God's plan. We question him. And Jesus sees for what it is, is the Satan and the satan, satanic forces behind it saying, no, 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 you're putting your eyes on the things of man and not on the things of God. And so here's what he does as we close out this chapter. He invites the disciples. He calls, he calling the crowd to him with his disciples. And he said to them, see, this is all a part of this plan. Remember how we said Peter sees it, but he doesn't see it? It's kind of like he sees, the, he sees a person, Jesus, but he's like a tree walking. He doesn't quite see who Jesus is clearly yet because he doesn't get it. He says, you're the Messiah, yes, but you can't be the suffering servant. You can't die. You need to live. And so part of this plan, he invites the crowds and the disciples in, and he tells them something. I want you to see this. If anyone would come after me, you want to follow me? You want to be my disciple? You want to be a Christ follower? Here's what he says. He says three things. Let him deny himself. Circle that. Deny himself. Take up his cross. And follow me. Now, in our culture today, the cross is, you know, it can be kind of in vogue, right? It's like I have a tattoo of a cross on my arm, or I've 
got a necklace that has a cross. I mean, I see baseball players, right? I mean, they all like their jewelry, especially Acuna. He likes his jewelry. It looks pretty cool on him. Doesn't look cool on me. Uh, and so that's why I do not do it. Um, but, but, you know, like, but it's like this big cross, and like we see these things, and it's like, you know, you might have it on your car, and we have it in our graphics design for different things, and stuff like that. And, and so the cross can mean these things. But I, I, to understand the, the brutality of this is, there, I mean, there was a historian, I wish I'd have put it in my notes, I didn't, I'm just trying to recall it off, my, off the top of my head here. But um, there was a historian who was talking about the Romans and their punishment, and he was just saying how awful it was for a Roman to be done this and this and this. And, like, and he kept getting like an abomination for this. I'm sorry I'm giving this very much a paraphrase. But then he lastly talked about crucifixion, and it was like it was the, you don't do something like this to a Roman. Like this is the worst of the worst. Crucifixion was brutality at its core. It was awful what they would do to people. The crucifixion was this picture of like the worst of the worst ways of death. Yes, you could die more painful ways, but it's just the most shameful way. We're going to put you in front of people and line the streets with you there so people can mock you, laugh at you, spit on you, do whatever they want to do and look at you until you finally gave your last breath. And Jesus was put, if you remember the story of the crucifixion, he's put with a crown of thorns on his head. What are they doing? They're mocking him, saying, oh, here, look at this king, but he's going to die on this cross. They're mocking him. They're going to take nails and say, oh, why don't you just get, if you're the one you claim to be, you can heal and rise the dead. Why don't you just get off the cross, Jesus? They're mocking him. This is the cross, and here's what Jesus is saying about his followers, that we're to die with him. You see, we die to self. This is, like, like Christianity, almost above all, is like this aspect of delayed gratification. It's, it's waiting with anticipation what's to come, but it's a lot of denying self. It's a lot of living for another. It's saying, you're king, I'm not. It's not my way, it's your way. And here's this, what's happening is this happens through belief, and it's progressive it might be feeble at first, and you're going to be like uh, one of the gospel uh, characters that we see in the gospels who's like, I believe, Jesus, but help my unbelief. I, I want to believe, but I, I just I can't. I don't see it. I need more. You might be like Doubting Thomas who's like, I'm not going to believe until I touch his hands and touch his side. And Jesus, in his great mercy to him, said, here, here I am. my hands and my side. And you know what he did? Progressively, he's, Thomas was one of the disciples. He followed. He heard. He saw these things. It was progressive. His belief, he, he believed, but not fully. Peter believed, but not fully. We see that in this passage. We, every one of the disciples, it's like this progressive. It's like, that's more common than the Paul version that I was talking about earlier. Paul conversion is, is rare. It's not like, boom, you have this light bulb moment, and bam, I believe, and like, you're like all in and everything. A lot of times it's a process, but here's the difference, and I want to I make this clear this morning before I close. Listen, this is the difference, is this. The difference between Pharisees and Herod and the disciples. They all, their vision's blurred. Herod and the, Herod and the Pharisees are blind, completely spiritually blind. Here's the difference. They don't want to believe. They don't even want to believe. They're like, mm-mm, 
They've already said no. The disciples, they're like so confused. <laughs> like, I want to believe, and I see you, Jesus, and I keep following you, and I'm going to do it again tomorrow. I'm going to do it again the next day. But I don't know, but I want to know more. Will you reveal yourself to me? Will you show yourself to me? I really liked what one author explained. I think they explained this really well because this aspect of like, I don't yet understand. He said this, followers, however dull and unfaithful, are patiently instructed. Like, you know, you might be like, I'm, I'm trying to learn. You know, like that was me in, in high school. I'm like, I'm trying to learn, sort of. You know, I'm like, but I'm not getting it. I need some little, can someone give me a little extra help? Can someone explain this further? I need a little more information. I don't get it. I, I hear you, and I know my friend got it immediately, but I didn't understand all these physics problems right away. I'm like, I need a little help. Nowadays, the help is YouTube. <laughs> like, all right, YouTube, teach me, right? He says, followers, however dull and unfaithful, are patiently instructed. And notice this, he says, if they follow all along the way Jesus leads, they will eventually be transformed from mere data collectors, like, I'm taking in data, this is cool, he's great, okay, yeah, he does this, he does that, data collectors, into meaning discerners. And he says, it all hinges on the decision for or against Jesus. You see, Herod, Herod and the, um, Herod and the Pharisees are against Jesus, they tried, the Pharisees tried to test him. Herod's, no, he can't be who he's saying, claiming to be. He might be John the Baptist, you know, he's coming to torment me and all these things, but he's not, he's not the son of God, he's not Jesus, he's not, there's nothing special about this man. See, their decision isn't to follow. So right now, is what I'm going to ask you. Like, if you're like, you might be, you may be, I don't know where you are, you might be critic, you might be like seeker, you might be follower, you might be devoted follower who is like, I mean, God, you, what, every day is a day of like, okay, God, what do you have for me today? And you're praying those kind of prayers every day, and you're like this devoted follower. And, but you might be the biggest critic, and you're going like, I, I mean, I, I hear you, but I don't. I don't see it. Here's my encouragement to you, to the seeker, to the critic, to the follower, to the like, I, I, I think I got it, but I'm still confused. I'm not sure completely. Keep following. Keep taking in the data. Keep seeking him. As you seek him, you'll be like the blind man. The blind man, you might start seeing a little, it's a little fuzzy, but the more you seek, the more you pursue, the more you follow, the more he will reveal himself to you. It's a fact. So what we see, this progressive aspect of transformation. We're seeing that with the disciples through our story, and we're seeing it over and over again through the whole of Scripture, is these people who are wanting to believe and yet are unwilling. There's others like the rich young ruler who says, like, I want to follow you. And then when Jesus calls and he says, all right, great, I, I hear that you've, you've kept all the commandments, except he's like, well, that's great, you've kept them all, it's awesome. Well, go sell your possessions and give it to the poor. And he's like, instead of saying okay, what does that look like? I don't really know. Um, how am I going to live? Like, he didn't ask questions. He didn't say, okay, I'll, I'll do that. Maybe even reluctantly. No, he turned away. He stopped following. That's unbelief. That's spiritual blindness. And the spiritual blindness, the only remedy is for God to open your eyes. But the power of community and being around other believers who do see clearly is one of the best things you can do if you're a little fuzzy. 
is be around those who do see clearly, who are following passionately, lovingly. Be around those people. Surround yourself with those people and say, like, I don't get it. I'm not sure, but I'm going to keep pursuing. I'm going to keep following, and I'm going to see what God has for me. And my belief is that he'll open your eyes. But I want to challenge any of you in this room to be like the friends of the blind man. Be begging for those who aren't seeing, who don't fully see. Beg the Lord. Seek his face. Plead with him, God, will you open their eyes to see? God, use me. Put someone in their path. God, would you, like, advocate for people? And here's the thing. When you're begging people, think that there might be someone else living in in Seattle or in Michigan or somewhere else and their family lives in this area and they're begging God to open that person's eyes and they live in Buford, Georgia. And guess what? You can be a part of being the one who is responsible to share the gospel with and answer the prayer that was happening thousands of miles away. What a gift that we get to be on both ends of that. The prayer warriors who are begging God to do something and then the people who share the gospel and help people see Jesus clearly. That's my prayer, is that we will see him for who he is. That's why we sing this morning about beholding him. Our eyes see, and right now you might be like, I don't see it. Man, don't give up. Don't give up. Keep pursuing. Keep following. And listen, I, I really believe it'll be like this blind man, and that'll be your story too. You're like, uh, it's a fuzzy trees, but all of a sudden, God opens your eyes, and you see, and you believe, and you follow, and you're going to deny yourself. Take up your cross daily and follow deny yourself. That comes not from willpower. It comes from the power of God in you and the love he has shown to you. It's a motivator to say, okay, this life isn't about me. I'm going to follow him. Will you follow him? Will you trust him today? Let me pray. Father, we thank you so much for your glorious grace, this glorious, glorious grace. The grace of God reaches for me. God, I, I don't know why I grew up in the home I grew up in. I don't know why you had grandparents who loved me and prayed for me and had parents who loved me to help me see who Jesus is. But I know that took time. It took probably about 12 years of time in my life to really grasp who you are and what you've done, and the longing to have a relationship with me. Maybe others in this room who are, have been going longer than those 12 years that I experienced. God, will you open their eyes? Will you help them to understand who you are and what you've done? Help us to believe that the, the only remedy comes because you are going to be this suffering servant who is going to die in our place. What a Savior you are. What a Redeemer. Father, will you do ultimately what only you can do is remove the blindness from our eyes. We understand the Bible tells us that the God of this age has blinded the eyes of people. That Satan is keeping our eyes blind. And so we need our eyes to be opened. We can't just kind of open our eyes. We need intervention like this man needed. And I pray that you would open all of our eyes at the various stages with which we are in. 
as we walk through this life, I pray that you would continue to open and give us more and more of a better vision. Give us like this eagle eye vision to see you for who you are. And I believe if we saw you, if we see you for who you are, it will lead us to deny ourselves, take up our cross daily and follow you. So help us to do that. Help us to live in light of that this week. God, forgive us of how we live for self and how we want to do things the way we want to do them. And so help us in all these ways. God, we are so thankful for you, and we want to ask for your help. We want to ask for your blessing, um, and we ask that you will do what only you can do. And do this in the power of your spirit, and in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.